0: Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantel. I'm Tso. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Onamik Saha. Hi. And do you want to just tell us a little bit about your role here at Goldsmiths yeah, College?
1: Yeah, I work in the department, we've changed our name. We work, I work in the Department of Media, Communications and Cultural Studies.
2: Very nice. Um, when did that change?
1: That, like, literally a week ago. That's good. <laughs> literally a week ago. So that's nice. We're in the Professor Stuart Hall Building, so it feels like this nice like synergy. It's like coming together. Yeah, and I also so I'm a lecturer there, and I run an MA called Race, Media, and Social Justice with my colleague, brilliant colleague Brett St. Louis in Sociology, who I know some of you might know, and that's been run. It's in its second year now. That's what I do.
0: So we want to talk to you to say a little bit about your new book, which came out earlier this year.
1: Yeah, Race and the Cultural Industries. Honestly, it was really fun to write. This kind of academic writing is, yeah, of course it is. It's like really difficult. It's really challenging. You have kind of ebbs and flows. Sometimes you think, yes, this is the greatest thing ever. I'm going to shift paradigms to oh no one's going to want to read this this is terrible yeah. and um and yeah I went through those same processes but this is a subject that's really close to my heart and I guess where it came from assuming that's what you're asking right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no you're totally on the wrong track yeah, so, so what I guess what I was kind of interested in I guess where it came from was that certainly for me I'm I, I turned forty last year, so the nineties were a really formative moment oh for God, me. Oh my God, and the
2: same age. Four. Is that right?
1: You look oh, good man. for it. You look good for it, brother. <laughs> you, um, <laughs>
2: you both look lovely.
1: Face for radio. I um as a student in the nineties, there was this really exciting moment where all of a sudden issues of race, cultural identity, gender, sexuality were felt like. They were at the forefront. And there was a particular interest, and this is what drew me in to academia, was, you know, it was a moment of cultural studies, right? And so there was an interest in kind of popular culture and representational politics. And that, for me, was really exciting. As a British Asian or, you know, some South Asian origin, born in Britain, I was having to mostly contend with Comple- yeah, and, and total yeah. Um, invisibility. Me and my sister, I'm sure Tissa, so you remember. I remember this game. We used to play Spot the Asian, which is where you essentially watch TV for hours upon hours upon end, and basically just wait he for that. Yeah. yeah, and like literally, when you saw a brown person come on the screen, you know, you hey, shout, you scream the whole place. To get my name, It's on the top of the box. The, the pops. He's <laughs> <laughs> like <"There's laughs> <a top> person <laughs> in the <laughs> audience. <laughs> yeah, it's on top of yeah, and it didn't matter yeah. if they were a terrorist, if they were a shopkeeper, <laughs> they were like it was recognition. You know, yeah, yeah that's it it like TV. It was kind and so you know that was what I was growing up with in the 80s and come the 90s actually there was this really interesting moment of stuff happening in art and culture you had kind of certainly in terms of British South Asians they were becoming a much more visible presence in British popular culture and then of course this was going alongside the writings of Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy and you know and, and Avtar Brown like various others who were kind of talking about um, this moment and helping me as a kind of young student unpack the kind of the cultural politics of difference right mm-hmm. and um, For me, that was a really exciting moment. And like I said, it kind of is is the reason why I'm here now. But that kind of debate, that discussion of representation, the politics of representation and what it can yield, kind of fell by the wayside. And I think, you know, for good reason, because quite frankly, some of that discussion did get a little bit... I don't know what's the polite way of saying this, but, you know, there's lots of different reasons why that kind of work kind of fell out of favour, that kind of interest in popular culture and representation, right? One of it was because where was the politics? Right. So other than kind of demand, we need better representations, there was not else it could offer, really. And, you know, and I think there was a critique from not just the left, but, like, you know, anti-racists in particular, saying, well, why... Are we focusing on the way this black person's represented in this television sitcom or the way this Asian family appear in this soap opera when there's real racial violence out in the streets? We're talking, you know, economic exploitation, racial subjugation and so on. Why are we talking about these issues? They're a distraction. You know, at at best, they're trivial. At worst, they're a distraction. Some of that writing as well, I think, just became like, as it took on really... Elaborate modes of deconstruction became really esoteric and even more removed. What is esoteric? Esoteric means just kind of like complex and out there and abstract, Mm. and like even more removed from the lived realities of the people that were being discussed. Right.
2: To make the sort of theory of what you're talking about relate to, let's say maybe TV shows in the '90s. What would you say were like particular moments of representation that people were writing about? Like. So when, when you're talking, yeah. I think about things like Brookside right. and like...
1: First cha- lesbian kiss. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: And like um, yeah. like Channel 4, like staying up late yeah. to watch Channel 4 and like there yeah. being brown
3: people on yeah. there. But you see, and, you see, in the 90s, UK was rubbish, but America was good. Yeah. So for example, on the TV I had Sister Sister. Uh, sister, sister, doctor Cooper, and all them people. Yeah, they had, they had untold TV. Shows I think you'll it. find it was called Hanging with Mr. Cooper. That's the
1: loser. He that's wasn't you, a doctor. That's the he Hanging was an, an the ex-basketball <laughs> <basketball> player. Can you see all those people there? Fresh you had loads of them. Yeah, no, but you had loads of them, But they were all American. Well, I tell you what, yeah. that's so basic. You're talking about Nickelodeon, actually, yeah. which was a really interesting moment. And actually, there's a you. there's yeah. a colleague, um, Sarah bannett Weiser at LSC, wrote a book about Nickelodeon and the politics of diversity and actually the way in which race and uh, and, and the urban was kind of instrumentalized and became a part of Nickelodeon's branding, actually. Mm-hmm. So, actually, they had it wasn't just a kind of commitment to having more diverse voices, it became part of a branding, which, you know, you know, and is kind of maybe something we can talk about, kind of had enabling effects because actually we saw more black and brown people on television than any other moment. I think there was something happening in Britain, actually. I wrote something about it recently about that Cool Britannia, which you know, mm-hmm. spit on the floor when we hear that, you know, yeah. it's kind of associated with new labour and um, when we start talking about it gets associated with Britpop, it becomes this very kind of conservative white yeah. thing. But actually mm-hmm. for a moment, for a very brief moment, it was, I felt like anyway, Britain recognising its own multicultural, mm-hmm. right? That's, it felt like for a moment, and so all of a sudden we weren't just black and Asian, but we were black British, we are British Asian. It was that, that moment was formed through the cultural production of Black and Asian and others, you know, yeah. kind of cultural producers through their art, through the music they were making, through the films they were making, through the TV shows they were developing. But before, like, the second generation Asian moment, I was, you know, that drew me in. There was black British popular culture and cultural production was absolutely critical, not least Soul to Soul. Um, the Real McCoy, remember that sketch yeah, show? That yeah, yeah, yeah. paved the way directly for Goodness Gracious Me, yeah. which oh, was yes. an incredibly important moment for the British Asian. Seen um, in terms of like you know in film and you know I think it was called you know, it was called UK Black B L A K yes. that moment was kind of which is, which I think is a brilliant title we should try and bring that back actually um to talk about the new kind of forms of like British born black cultural production that wasn't in awe
3: of America yeah you know, because yeah, yeah. you know black black popular culture was dominated by mm-hmm. African American culture of when I, like when I look at the culture thing like when I was growing up like by the Early nineties, so the British hip hop scene was just copying American. Yeah. But then when we started doing our own thing, yeah. and that's when I think it's real. When you yeah, yeah. what you what you what you live, what you, what, yeah. what you see, what you do, what you what you wear. That's yeah. why I could never get into like with, with Spike. You know? Yeah, I don't wear Jordans. We don't wear Jordans. We don't but wear this makers. is what's funny:
0: is you hate Grime. Yeah? you hate Grime. I listen to Grime. Do you? Yeah. Last time I spoke, to you, you were like, "Oh, it's just
1: noise. This is just what the it's young people are no, listening old to." Old stuff. <laughs> the old stuff. The new that's stuff. The, old the new stuff. The uh, stuff like, is really it's right.
2: Well, it was making me think about when you were talking, yeah. <laughs> talking about like black British and British Asian yeah. cultural production in that yeah. time. So, I was born in 1992, so wow. like you were a student at yeah, that time. 96 you're, was yeah. when I
1: started at Goldsmiths actually.
2: And oh my god, god. Were, you you were you guys at that What did you study?
1: <laughs> you class of '99,
3: '96, yeah, yeah. You graduated oh, in '99, Yeah, oh really? My god, you so I, I, to I was
2: just gonna say that um, that period for me, and yeah. this is why. I get so concerned about what the moment we're in now is because growing up in the 90s, even though, like, yeah, I was a brown, working-class family, yeah. culture and TV and music almost gave me, like, this hope yeah. that things were... To ha- I don't
1: wanna yeah. these things were going to get better. Because it is, yeah.
2: it is like that. And it felt like, even growing up, our family and who yeah. we were was becoming more accepted because yeah. of what I was seeing on TV. Yeah. Now, TV raised me. Music yeah. raised me. Yeah. And... I don't feel like there's been a moment like that for yeah. a while, but I don't know if that's because it's yeah. my experience. Oh no, look, there was something about. Growing up in the nineties yeah. and the early naughties, that was hopeful, hey, you know, for I, people of colour, particularly. That, yeah, yeah,
1: no, and that that re- resonates with me really strongly, and that's exactly how I feel about, and I still feel that way about popular culture. You know, popular culture matters. You know, mm. Stuart, all that stuff. Stuart Hall kind of made that argument back in like nineteen eighty one or yeah, whatever it was, yeah. and I guess it's, but that's that kind of thinking, kind of fell out of favour, and I think for yeah. good reason actually, because actually I think theoretically that or that kind of sub-discipline of cultural studies there was it could only take us so far yeah. so I guess with this new book to go to go back to that original question it was a way of thinking about a can I make a case for why I think culture still matters mm-hmm. not to the expense of actual kind of activism and campaigning and yep. kind of you know around like whether like um, economic forms of social justice or other kind of you know Non-distributed forms of racial justice, but so I'm trying to make a case for why media and culture matters. But also, I wanted to try and think about well, how can we not just create something new for the sake of it, but we need to reinvigorate this debate on because it's not. It's like I said, I just it frustrated me that. All we could do, all that debate would do is say, well, this representation of black people is stereotypical, so we need a more authentic representation. Well, what what the hell is authentic blackness, right? Mm-hmm. Or this representation is negative, we need a positive... Rep- well, what's a... You know, the Cosby show was a positive representation <laughs> of blackness, yeah, but we all know that. That's, that cultural politics of that show is
3: so much more complex. So if you're talking about that then, so what's your take on the kind of view of that drill music now. Yeah. And that subculture that's existing there. Yeah. So I speak to my friends on a regular basis. Yeah. And one of them he works in the probation service. Yeah. So he's adamant yeah. that there, there is a link. And I'm right. trying to say you can draw correlations with it. Yeah. But I said it doesn't make yeah the, it's, it's not causation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the I said the music is reflecting what they yeah. see around them. But it's also entertainment, so there's also going to be a form of embellishment and exaggeration to it. Yeah, yeah. So I feel
0: like the equivalent of that argument is being like, opera makes people like... Dickheads to poor people, like mm. makes rich people like. Obviously, that's not the case.
3: Mm-hmm. But th- th- but this is, these are the same kind of narratives people <laughs> yeah, yeah, talk yeah. about when it comes to like especially like black types of music. They kind of essentialize around crime. And yeah, yeah. So like, yeah talk about, yeah. Yeah. like I said, th- these I said these kids are reacting to things that they can't really explain. So a lot of them are talking about gentrification, how they have been forced out of yeah. the area, but they can't put yeah. it in those kind of yeah. academic words. So they're talking about what they see and what's going on yeah. socially, and he doesn't really. I said, but. They're just reflecting what's going on. Yeah. But I said it's the way of uh, of the way of well, white site policing yeah. black culture. Yeah, I mean come on, I mean like how I mean it's another
1: moral panic about mm-hmm. music. You know, mm-hmm. this has happened yes. throughout time, you know, mm-hmm. since like rock and roll. Rock and roll you know, and like you know
0: Well before that, yeah. I mean like always, always. There's like certain kinds of music which are
1: salacious. Yeah, exactly. The so, devil's
0: triads, yeah. my well, musical theory yeah, friends they, they, they all know what gonna... I'm talking about. <laughs>
1: So yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's a long line, and I, and I actually, yeah, no, I, I see it in the same way as you, so in terms of like it being a kind of a reflection of that particular reality expressed through music. And then I think, you know, it's not like you know, music's this kind of, you know this kind of separate thing that is a way in which you communicate a message. It's also something that feeds into the reality Mm. and people's everyday lives as well. And so, yeah, all those things you said in terms of, yeah, it was also a space where people can embellish Mm. and kind of exaggerate almost. But then also, undeniably, it's a part of that, you know, a very tragic reality, a brutal reality, um, not least through, you know, the gentrification of particular parts of London and so on. Yeah, and you know, in terms of like media theory, you know, the kind of media effects, you know, this again, this is a classic debate. Do video games make people more violent? Yeah. You know, does heavy metal make so people more violent? You know, does porn make young, <clears throat> you know, young men into rapists, you know, and it's so much more complicated than that. I mean that's I mean that's Media Studies one oh one, really. Yeah. And so yeah, I think we've got to be careful of any kind of causal link. But the kind of role in which media plays in the everyday, I think, is still kind of underestimated. Certainly, for those of us working in kind of race-critical studies, you know, I think, like, you know, sociology obviously deals with issues of race and racism, I think, in the most um, complex, nuanced ways. Um, Media studies is interested in, like, power and ideology, but... Not really, but, you know, race is kind of marginal. And similarly, in back, sorry, what I wanted to say about sociology is it's interesting race and racism, but media is kind of left out a little bit, you know, because yeah. it's like, well, that's not our analysis of social relations happens in this space and the media's not really right. Well. And so what I'm trying to do is bridge those two things together. So mm-hmm. think about, you know, I had my PhD, my PhD was in sociology. So kind of bring those ideas about racialization, about, you know, how meanings of race kind of created and circulate Mm. but also try and bring that media analysis Mm. which is much more sophisticated than Mm. sometimes like well you know drill is causing knife crime do you know what I mean because actually it gives us a more detailed analysis of actually how the media operates
3: and its its influence in society but what scares me is that this is the message that's being put out on the street this is what people are saying to yeah, people yeah. and people are drawing links to it. so not only the kind of uh, like the police are saying yeah it is a because you yeah. we've got parents saying to the kids yeah this causes that listen to that music causes that kind of crime yeah and so you're having there's a policy effect yeah 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 yeah. and so it's not just like a media thing now. it's yeah. actually policy effect so they're using the kind of uh, Cannativism laws, yeah, to ban that music, yeah, 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 and that, that's
1: punishing it's kids neutral, at 16, sixteen, seventeen. Yeah, I mean this is, I mean this is just like characteristic of like you know London as a neoliberal city in terms of like the policing of yeah, obviously drill, <laughs> but like Graham, you know, literally songs <laughs> banned from being played inside clubs, right? You know, Powell, right? Yeah, well, I mean, power right? You know, yeah, 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 because they were worried that you know they feared they would just lead to violence on the dance floor. So I didn't know, just, know like,
2: is banned in some
1: clubs. In, in some clubs, there was a moment where like you know, <laughs> so there's okay. very very famous images of. Like, you know, a DJ and an A4 sheet saying, don't play power. <laughs> um, when was this, sorry? This was, I don't know. 2001. 2000, yeah. 2001 yeah, yeah, okay.
0: But then, so like, as I said, like, mm. these kinds of racialized forms of music, there's always been moral panics around yeah, them. Like, yeah. you think about, like, jazz or, like, yeah. going further back. Like, you know, people, yeah. it's like an easy way of controlling yeah. a marginalized group.
1: <laughs> And because also, yeah, no, absolutely. But also because I think, and it kind of just shows the political force of like cultural production, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because it is seen as a threat because it doesn't conform to, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of social, cultural norms of whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. So So that's particularly, precisely because of its, P- potential power, and so with the book, I wanted to take that seriously. I wanted to take that seriously. If culture does have that power, and you know, as you might have guessed, I subscribe very strongly to like Stuart Hall's version of Gramsci and hegemony in terms of thinking about power. Right? Okay.
0: Right. Probably, you're yeah. gonna have. Sorry, we right. try and be accessible. You're gonna right, have to okay. give us a little so, lowdown so on who Gramsci is right, and right, what right. hegemony. Right. Right.
1: Gramsci, is. Italian geezer. Uh, from <laughs> In the olden days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also he had problems with Marxism because actually that kind of, he found a particular type of Marxism too economically determinist. As so though you can explain everything that happens in society just by who owns the means of production and its economic base, right? And he's saying, well, actually power works and more sophisticated ways than that these days might be in the case before, but certainly in the times when he was writing, which was like the thirties and forties. Um, and it, I think it still rings true today. And so this brings us to hegemony, which is the idea that power doesn't, it used to, you know, dominant groups used to gain power by through like force for physical, military force. Right. But these days society has kind of become more complex and moved on from that where, whereby you can't get away with that. You can't just go, you know, kill people who you disagree with. Well, Certainly, mm-hmm. maybe. Depending. But yeah, depending which country we're talking about. <laughs> um, but, and so what... Gramsci said was actually, power was gained through consent. So actually trying to convince the people you're dominating that your views and your ideas and your ways of doing things is the right way. Not even the right way, but just common sense.
0: For example, David Cameron finishing every single policy announcement with, because it's the right thing to do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, that's a particularly paternalistic way of doing it, right? (laughs) But it's essentially where the dominant idea, the, the dominant ideology, not that it just comes in, is the... You know the ideology that we all follow but actually becomes common sense so even the dominated adopt that view right? Mm -hmm. One of the other things that's really important in Gramsci's formulation, this is where Stuart Hall draws from is the way in which power ideologies are constantly under contestation they're all constantly being struggled over so it's not just one party wins out and that's it, they've won actually, do you know what I compare it to I don't know if you remember as a kid if you got kids, um, you remember that game Marble Run
0: Oh, yeah, And you kind of, it's
1: like a tray, isn't it? Yeah, and you kind yeah, of yeah. got to move it up and down and left and right to basically get the marble into a particular hole. Mm. Think about the field of power ideology like that, where basically you've got two sides and they're basically trying yeah. to pull the tray towards them. To mix moving around.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a shame
1: you can't see what he's doing, it's very vivid. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, and that's so what Stuart Hall says, and this is, I think, what I think really influenced me, is that no side is ever going to win. Yeah. It's yeah. just like society is constant, this constant struggle over ideology, right? And so for me, bearing that in mind, it's like, how can the, the challenge is how can we just shift it in a particular direction? And in mm-hmm. my view, it should be in a leftward direction, right? In case yeah. you haven't guessed. And so, for, so, bearing that in mind, Stuart Hall saw popular culture actually as a really important. Force, if you like, that could help shift that power. That is
0: such a good explanation.
1: Was that all right? That's such a
0: good. It's know, almost what, like just, you teach. This <laughs> <time>. <laughs> I, just remember, no, I just remember, didn't you,
2: win, you won like a uh, teaching award, didn't you? I did
1: win a teaching award. Oh my god! Me. You're
3: very, uh, You're very
2: good ex- explaining. Well, yeah.
1: so
2: good. <laughs> I, could speak to I could see your no, face you, lo- you, lit up. No, because you you know
3: I, was, I said to someone yesterday, when I kind of talked like, yeah. about music, I put in that same kind of concept. But I was looking at Hall from like when he talked about the crisis and hegemony. So I said, when they talking about Jew music is the same way he talked about the kind of mugger. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So, like, so when is the crisis? They convince people from consent. Yeah, so they're so talking about security. So we're going well, to exactly you. the same yeah, with uh, terrorism?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like. You should be afraid of these yeah. people, therefore, you'll consent to us detaining them say, yeah. without trial. And, and here's a brown man <laughs> to tell
2: you why this is the right thing <laughs> to
3: do. <laughs> but, but because, because race is like, because you can't be racist anymore, so you yeah. talk about terms of like, talk about immigration, talk about security, yeah. talk about culture. Yeah. These things are the new words, the new ways of talking about race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I said, this is how we are. Like, when yeah. I hear my mates, they, won't, they can't say you're that bastard, but they'll talk about immigrants, talk yeah. about, are they from a different culture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so the culture
1: can't be assimilated, so these are new ways mm. of talking about it. Why like, that version of power because it also means that we can take it complicates that whole kind of capitalist commodification co-opting of the other kind of okay, argument, right? That's
0: quite a that's quite a technical subject.
1: Yeah, so like <laughs> right, well put it this way, right? So so yeah. Colin Kaepernick was the NFL quarterback, right? He was yeah. a quarterback, <laughs> wasn't he? Who he kneeled,
3: kneeled.
1: Is a national anthem in protest against the kind of the the deaths of the ongoing daily murders. Of black people in America, so Nike yeah. Yeah. did a big campaign around him. What was the slogan on it? What was the? Oh, you can campaign? do anything or something. Yeah. No, was it be be,
0: be yeah. yeah. We've obviously been really <laughs> indoctrinated. By this yeah. So yeah. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, as soon as I saw it, I was like, I, like obviously,
2: yeah. I think he's amazing. I do think yeah. he's amazing. But Nike always yeah. jump on. The, so this is, the, yeah. Well, they're very
1: savvy. Yeah. It's a really, it's. I mean, it's a really interesting argument, isn't it? Because, you know, I mean, let's talk about it purely in financial. You know, Kaepernick was, you know, disavowed by the political establishment, but even worse than that, by the NFL oh, the itself, NFL. right? Exactly. So yeah. he couldn't find a new team to play for. Who can take on the sports industry and the political industry, you know, I mean, establishment really is, is, you know, it's culture, oh, oh, culture, culture. Oh, the only thing that has that kind of clout that could take that on is a corporation, yeah. right? Oh my God, isn't that, I mean, that especially in America. Yeah, and so in that sense, when we, you know, we could organise, we, we could like go out and go organise, <laughs> or, like even let's go, let's go, you know, thousands of people on the streets protesting against that. In some ways, yeah, again, if we think about the marble tray, the marble (laughs) marble run, to what extent is that really going to pull the tray? And maybe, as much as, you know, we can talk about Nike, and I do have problems with Nike and their relationship with blackness, and the way in which they have constantly appropriated and exploited the corporality, you know, the kind of bodily power of black people, right? The superhuman power of black sports people, you know, that's how Nike have made their money. Yeah. Um... Maybe there's some black executives on their board, You know, I think in the end, we you know, it's mostly white institutions, but you know, so I am kind of cynical about that. But in that moment, I wonder actually, Nike intervening that did shift it a little bit. But the point is, is that it quickly shifts
3: back and you know, it's always ongoing, struggles always ongoing, but even though they're a corporation, and everyone thinks they're corporations, think of them badly, like Nike are. Or- in touch with the street. So they talk to you. So they've got sceptics doing trainers. Yeah. Dizzy Rascal doing yeah. trainers. So they bring urban youth to the main street. Yeah. So they, they, they kind of interact with you in a way that, that most companies don't. Yeah. But they
2: don't give urban youth any money but like they don't help.
0: They don't mm. do anything
3: to. Well, like I said, like, like, if you come, so there's lots of sports centers that are sponsored by Nike, right? Yeah, right. yeah. So it's like they're like any corporation. They're kind yeah. of self-serving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course. They, but like what Adam Smith says, so you can have like a selfish motive, but good can come yeah. of it. So, I, I understand yeah. that.
1: Yeah. No. Exactly. And so. I think it's about, you know, and all always stress contingency, right? It's all about what's happening in that moment. What are the forces that's shaping, whether the economic, well political, economic or socio-cultural f- forces, how are they shaping it and what and so again to go, I guess, to go back to what I was trying to do with this book was kind of develop that representational argument, but kind of think about it in terms of structure, right? And what are the forces The kind of whether it's legacies of empire or capitalism itself that shape the cultural industries, you know, what role does the cultural industries or the media essentially what I'm talking about? How is the media shaped by those two things? So that took me into what's the relationship between capitalism and racism, It was like, oh my goodness, um, am I really going to go here? But okay, I'll give it a stab. Yeah. And then also thinking about how does that shape how cultural production itself takes place. So people like who you, you've mentioned, like Dizzy or Skepta, trying to produce their art within this context, which is in turn shaped by these bigger forces. Mm. Um, so it's thinking about production, how culture is produced. And I feel like that's a, mu- a way out of constantly just trying to, decide what's the best way of interpreting this piece of art. Actually if we look at um, the production of representation, that is incredibly revealing about the relationship between capitalism and race. That's why I kind of that's what my argument is in the
2: What nutshell. do you think about and I went to I went to see June Sarpong speak the other night in London. Cool. She was She's talking about, about diversity.
1: Yeah she was talking book. about yeah. her
2: book and she what was it made called diversify. Again? Yeah I
1: haven't read it
2: and she talks about her big argument is talking about the economic benefits yeah, of diversifying yeah. work, the workplace. And it yeah. was a lot about basically yeah. capitalism and how yeah. diversity can benefit yeah. capitalism. Obviously, like her intention is for places to be yeah. inclusive, which is amazing. She talks a lot about di- disability yeah. and like making people more visible. But I am slightly concerned about mm. conversations surrounding, interchanging capitalism with yeah. diversity and yeah. how making economic cases to convince yeah. white yeah. white directors that they need to have a black woman on their board because yeah. it will make them make more money. I don't know, if there's something yeah. really up no bit it's I like know. that's like yeah. corporate
0: feminism, isn't it? We used to get talks like that at school all the time being yeah. like, yeah, well, it just makes economic sense to so it's Like, cause, you know, that's like half the world's economic resources that we're just not exploiting and we should be. And you're yeah. like, all people are human and deserve human rights. Yeah. Like, are you straight? Oh. I, mean, I mean,
1: I sympathize with her position because, yeah, yeah, when you're kind of faced with a complete lack of diversity and completely white organizations. You know, if that's a language it takes in order to yeah, convince, this then, is what it you makes, know, then, yeah, but obviously as well, no, I share your cynicism about the kind of economic benefits of diversity. Um Not least in the context of cultural production, what it means is that, well, then I'm only allowed in if I am economically successful, right? Mm, yeah. And cultural production one of the crazy things about cultural production is that it's an incredibly risky business it's really hard to know what's going to work whether it's an album whether it's a film whether it's a TV show mm. you can have the example I always use if you can you know you can be a studio and you've got the best hottest new director the hottest new star massive budget but he's still not guaranteed a big hit and yeah, we've known yeah. throughout time there's been famous flops same with music right you don't know you think you know even like a famous artist you're not Guarantee that. Yeah. Hit, yeah. And so but it's so you know, the culture cultural production and the culture industries are characterised by a lot of failure. The problem with the economic benefit for the, the economic benefits of diversity argument is that, yeah, it puts the impetus on us. We can be in as long as we're economically productive. But you know what? I want to have the same right to fail as my white counterparts. I don't, I just don't want yeah. to be yeah. in this institution I want to be able to have the same right to fail as they do because you know that if they fail, they'll be given another chance right this reminds, um,
2: me, of, this reminds me of the new Whitney Houston documentary yeah. Can I Just Be Me yeah. and she thought she obviously it's slightly different but she's yeah. talking about blackness and how yeah. she was criticised for not being black enough yeah. by black people right. and like it's, it's yeah. talking about how true equality is being it's not the, it's not being
0: the same but yeah. it's being as you say it's being able to fail it's being able to yeah. succeed it's and it's able to like look at Boris Johnson <laughs> that archetypal triple. like failure yeah. politician who just keep organising your far like yeah. these people will not Teflon. go away
1: <laughs> Teflon yeah. and so yeah no, and, and and also I think what that does is it the danger of the argument is it downplays the fact that diversity is a moral political ethical obligation right um, and it's it can't just be about economics um because like I said, actually, that will end up, that can be as powerfully exclusionary. Mm-hmm. Because then you have a logic and a rationale. Well, you didn't have, sorry, I like mm-hmm. you, but your last whatever you made flopped. And so therefore... And again, it's the same thing with uh, yeah.
0: like women. Like, oh, well, like maternity leave isn't economically viable, so yeah. why would we allow... You know, like exactly. that kind of stuff. Exactly. Like, so it, we
1: need to, so, you know, one of the big things, so I'm kind of deeply critical of diversity in this book, I've got dedicated a whole chapter to it actually and, um, and the way in which it's been instrumental. Of course you know we need the more I'm not saying we don't people of color shouldn't be. You know, we shouldn't have diversity training yeah. or initiatives to get more people of color in. The challenge is though, and I said this I say this time and time again, the challenge we're faced with is white privilege. Isn't gonna dismantle itself. No,
0: this
1: it. <laughs> you know, like fundamentally. Burn it down. So, Burn you, it down so, it so down. you can't. <laughs> yeah, well, that's totally not what I'm <laughs> suggesting. But I guess what it means is that what well, we need a new radical form of diversity in order to actually, you know,
3: make meaning, and we should actually do away with that word. Um, I, think, I think definitely. I think when, but when you're in there, when you're in a corporation, mm. and they talk diversity. What it does is singles you out yeah. as being different, even yeah. though you're told that you're all the same. Yeah. And they put you in a thing like so, as a, the one of two black people in the bank. Yeah. I, I'm, they won't put do you want to go on the diversity board. Why? <laughs> yeah. But I'm on it anyway. Yeah. And so you're in this diversity talking shop, and nothing ever happens. Yeah. Companies talk about diversity, but they don't really act on it. Really. It's a way of
1: managing the demands of minorities while keeping the status quo intact. Hundred percent. That was a direct quote from the book. <laughs> <thing>. Page fifty-two. <laughs> 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 Self-reference. Yeah. But, uh, no, but it is, that's what it is. That's what it is, isn't it? And um, and and to be honest with you though, but then you know, and this is one of the things again I wanna stress in the book is I wanted to stress complexity and contradiction. And actually those spaces can nonetheless be really enabling. So actually within that moment, no matter how cynically formed it <laughs> is, actually can be enabling and allow someone um, from a minority background to kind of stage some kind of intervention or do something interesting so these things are always ambivalent you know and 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 so that's that's a big (laughs) theme of the book actually so i'm not just like dismissing everything outright whether it's capitalistic or done in the name of diversity actually within those conditions i mean then this is i guess the controversial bit of the book actually or at least when i've given this talk people find this really difficult to or they you know find this really difficult to swallow and that's my argument about commodification you know and i take from this particular body of kind of what it's called political political economy of the media and which is basically looking at the media in its structural forms Mm, right mm. and there's a there's a tradition within it called the cultural industries tradition which is kind of broadly Marxist but um, also wants to challenge uh, I guess what they call it a vulgar Marxism have you heard that term vulgar Marxism So it kind of refers to, like, where people take Marx and it's absolute, you know, like, orthodox reading of Marx and this is what he said. The true text. Yeah, exactly. I don't know where, I don't know who coined the term vulgar Marxism, though. It's kind of a really weird turn of phrase. But so basically the idea that everything's derived from the economic base and so you just need to change that and then everything else will be fixed, essentially. So therefore, like, you know racism is a you know kind of wanting to fight racism is a false consciousness because actually you should actually be focusing on economics and a class-based politics right, right. that's what a kind of vulgar marxism is uh, um, is so, it mainly
0: white men who are well yes, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's,
1: yeah so all, and one, one of the things that this what i like about this one of the key arguments of the culture tradition it says that commodification is enabling as well as constraining, right? so
0: what is commodification?
1: Commodification is turning something that doesn't have an intrinsic economic value into a commodity to be bought and sold.
0: For example?
1: Uh, Let's talk about love how love is commodified mm-hmm. Valentine's Day right oh, all of a sudden love is this thing this pure thing which two people well, multiple Christ- people potentially can Like have. Christian? yeah Christian. Like like Christmas. Christmas is commodified sport you know these okay. are like you know so and not least culture right so culture is a you know why should me playing a lute be turned into a commodity well I don't know why I know, would love to see yeah. you playing
3: a lute I'd pay I, t- for I think that. that's some kind of
1: historical <laughs> thing so, <laughs> so commodification right so Karl Marx was deeply critical of commodification because this is how capitalism spreads you're turning stuff that isn't even a commodity into something that is then bought and sold right and that's how capitalism spreads and worse than that it's how workers it exploits the workers Mm because you know they're being made they're made to sell their labor in order to produce a commodity and they don't even make that much money and most of that money is made is given to you know taken Mm by the employer so commodification is generally seen in negative terms so we can go back to Nike we can talk about how Nike commodified blackness blackness Mm. doesn't have an intrinsic value but they're essentially selling it to let's be really crude to kind of you know like white middle class kids in suburban malls in Ohio right you know selling they don't know any black people but they're buying it right
2: Levi's have done that as well over the years yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely
1: you know and and the commodification of blackness and black you know Mm. has been like a clear example of that and generally people talk about it in very negative terms. So go back to Colin. Typical critique of that, that's Nike commodifying, you know, kind of black That's what activism. I thought straight away. Yeah, yeah. So it's commodification. But, but actually... But you've, made,
2: you've, you've slightly changed my mind about it, though. Yeah. Well, yes, so like, sorry, you tell, you tell us it. your so,
1: so commodification, Though this theory says that commodification, though, is exploitative. It is dangerous. It does, you know, uh, exploit workers and oversupply certain types of goods over others, you know, because if you think about media, right, media, if it's a profit-driven enterprise, you kind of basically just make the stuff that you know is going to sell loads, right? And often that's the kind of stuff that we don't really need more of, Mm -hmm. whether it's another reality TV show, whether it's another kind of... um, Bake off competition, you know, like or <laughs> or another pop.
0: Ariana Grande album. But
1: exactly like, right. Yeah. So it oversupplies certain types of goods that aren't actually that necessarily good for us, right? Yeah. All of those things are true, but also what these guys argue is that well, commodification is also can also be enabling. As much as I'm deeply critical of the media, you know, and how racist it is, as mm. well as sexist, homophobic, transphobic, and so on, the media has also in the even in the most profit-driven. Corporate settings has produced stuff that nonetheless enriches my life in somehow. It's led to the vast proliferation of cultural goods that have, you know, like I said, enriched my life, kind of taught me about myself and around, around about the world around me, has kind of helped me develop a racial consciousness, for instance, yeah. through profit-making commodities, I agree, right? I agree, I uh, agree. The example I use is when I was a teenager, I used to go, I used to just live on the edge of like London on zone four on the central line. And so we me and my mates used to go get The central line into Oxford Circus, and we go to Berwick Street first. We're like, you know, we buy records essentially. We go to Comet Garden, go to Rough Trade, which was a record store, yeah, which was a tiny which was in the basement, right, mm. of this skate shop. And we used to go there, and it was full of like really tiny, about the size of this room, and there was records which I'd never heard of, pretty niche, weird stuff. And so, we'd you know, pick out something that would blow our minds. And, and then we'd we go buying,
0: like actual vinyl, yeah.
1: This was the 90s, for goodness sakes, ask Um, and this wasn't Urban Outfitters, by the way. And then, um, <laughs> But then we'd also go to HMV, and HMV, you kind of go in, and all you there was was take that and Robbie Williams as you walk in, yeah. you're like, oh. but then you walk through, and it literally had every single record ever made, you know, like yeah. Apple, or like Spotify, but in physical form, and that was like... <laughs> Thank you for, ass- you for ass- explaining yeah. that to me! <laughs> <laughs> but, as, but, you know, but which kind of, which, which is in some ways was the most corporate the, like, you know, Rough Trade, was this kind of hit independent label. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. even in this, cool, they had everything. And that, for me, was equally, if not more so, exciting. So commodification can have, can be enabling. Another example, Atlanta. Have you watched that show, Donald Glover, right? Yeah. I watched Do it you on what?
0: your recommendation. Did you like it? I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Like, it am I allowed to enjoy yeah, it? I, I felt.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's, like, that's kind of seen as being this really kind of radical depiction of black life, black African-American life, yeah. right? Who's it produced by? The Fox Network. Aww. So this is like Rupert. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's another really good example of, even in the most corporate, cynical, profit-driven settings something beautiful, experimental, alternative, radical, you know, oh, can on. still emerge. But
2: I feel like this about Netflix. Yeah. Like, I think Netflix is amazing because <laughs> like so many of the shows, particularly Netflix originals, yeah are inclusive of people yeah, of colour, yeah, yeah. have queer people, yeah. have trans, trans people. Like, it's so much more inclusive than anything I've ever experienced on TV and I feel like, as I said before, TV raised me. Mm. Like, if I'd had Netflix growing up, <laughs> I don't know, I feel like I would have... Yeah.
1: Forged no yeah. actual human relationships.
2: Yeah, i exactly. <laughs> probably not gone to university.
1: <laughs> no, but I know, but I'm getting, uh, exactly. I mean, then that's another... So, so I guess I know, the point thats a whole thing, is, that's not, so the yeah. diversity in the media right now is a very and, and, and in terms of ways depiction is really interesting but so I guess what I'm trying to do is like with this book is like try and develop a really critical understanding of I, want, I don't want to downplay racism and racial ideologies in the media, I don't want to downplay that, but I think if we really want to critique it, we also need to recognise contradiction, and ambivalence, and those moments when something really amazing actually happens.
0: And on that note, we're going to talk about Black Klansmen.
1: Right? <laughs> yes. So,
0: so, so
2: I, I just start first of all by saying I out of the out of me, I saw it first, and I thought it was amazing, and I cried at the end. Oh yeah! By the way, this is going kind to of have spoilers um <laughs> i thought it was brilliant yeah. um but and i was like Saskia and so tc you have to go and see it so the day after Saskia went to see it with my also, parents she also thought it was really good and then as that's, that's, really that's my yeah. life i took
0: i treated them yeah. so, so oh, i live with my parents them. and like you know i don't pay rent so
3: sometimes yeah.
0: we i take them places oh, that's <laughs> nice that's very nice um and,
2: yeah, so as me and Saskia suspected, Tiso went to see it and hated
3: it. I got shingles <laughs> on the same day, so is that uh, bad? Um,
2: oh, Tiso. <laughs> Before or after? And then
3: we've just, saw, we've, just, we've
2: just spoke to Onamik, I was like, what do you think, Onamik? And he was like, eh.
1: I gave it I gave it three tacos. Three tacos what out does of five. That's uh, just my rating, personal like rating You know,
0: taco. Uh, the emoji is a symbol for vagina. Oh, is it? Balls. I didn't
1: know that. No. Um, uh, yeah, Three vaginas yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is a great party. As and, far as I'm since,
0: concerned. Since I've
2: seen yeah. it, I've met quite a lot of people, and in particular, people of colour and black people that have not liked it and said that they thought it was distasteful. Yeah. Said that they thought that. The depiction of the police as nuance and yeah. like such human, yeah. and particularly in yeah. this moment in America, was distasteful. Yeah.
1: Um, well, like off the mic before we started, I asked you, because you were telling me yeah. the story about you meeting your kind of black friends yeah. and them hating it, and you, and I asked you how that made you feel when <laughs> and you heard made, them. When it
2: made me feel like a bad black person. It, <laughs> like just, it made me feel yeah. I felt bad that there was something that I had missed in this film yeah. and then i mean that's completely irrational and i yeah. shouldn't feel like that but when i go back and think about watching the film there are problematic parts yeah. of it like for example there is not enough women in it yeah. particularly there's not enough black women in it like the back but that is above. like immediately very
0: striking yeah, we yeah, both yeah. talked about that after it. yeah no, we did there, talk like, about it
2: but like maybe i should have spoken about it a little bit yeah. more and i don't know i some people that I've spoken to thought the end of it where he shows, like, the Charlottesville, like, that that filming of the Charlottesville where people being run over, I had not actually, because I found it so awful to watch mm. when it happened, I had not actually watched it, mm, like, psyched. for yeah, that amount yeah. of time, and to watch that whole thing yeah. on a massive screen, I was like, I just cried. Did they
0: think it was really it's, inappropriate to have that?
2: Yeah. Really? Yeah, well, it's not, these are just, no, yeah, but
0: I think friends. that's yeah. that. I think is the thing no, I would so kind not, of least take not, issue with. So it's
2: not it's not inappropriate. They don't think it's inappropriate. They like. them they said majority of people that are going to be going to see this film in the UK are white, and it makes them feel like they are. It exceptionalizes Trump and doesn't make people. That's what they said. And it doesn't make people think about how they're complicit. Oh, in that's this. so interesting
0: because I completely disagree with that. Yeah. That's really interesting. So what I thought was good about it um, was that it was like. Because it starts with uh, Gone with the Wind and takes you through, like, various, like, moments of very open, like, ex- well, like ex- say extreme racism in America is, like, very extreme in its racialized politics and kind of shows, and, like, through the story shows that, like, white people in America are all complicit with racism. White women are complicit with yeah, racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mm. think he shows that quite clearly and by showing the Charlottesville thing it's kind of like, this is the logical conclusion of centuries mm. of... Okay, like maybe, racial oppression. Maybe
2: exceptionalizes American racism then. So they felt. So they was. They were saying to me, it's like what makes people in Britain, white British people, feel like, oh, American racism so mm. bad. Like we're not like that. Not anything that's happening now in this country. Oh, I think
0: that's kind of more a problem of like American imperialism in general.
3: Though, like yeah. American
0: TV mm-hmm. tends to always be like, are there other countries? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: But No. I, so when I watched it, I just thought to myself, like, how they betrayed. The, the white racist as two dimensional and simple. Mm. That's a stereotype in itself. That's mm. not how it is. The David David Duke is so clever and mm. so smart, and how he's man- maneuvered white racism to be something quite, quite almost Exceptful. innocuous and just sits yeah. there and not kind of questioned. It's not like the overt racism yeah. that they used to in America. But like I said, when I watched it, I thought, mm, really?
2: Mm. Well, I thought you would like it because um, the main character, he's not. It's, it's like he's a he's a black guy. He's but the main character, and he's not being portrayed in a serious. I,
3: I expect that from Spike Lee. From the from, from a black a black character to be very strong, but he like I said at the same time, if you're trying to expose racism and it's all its nuance, mm-hmm. I think he, he falls short on that. But he presents it in a kind of a very two dimensional way, and a way that black people are on the top when that's not really how it is yeah. in America.
0: Yeah, so that's what we were talking about when the others were out the room. Was mm-hmm. like there's a scene in it where. Um, all the police officers basically are racist I would say Um, but there's one who's like kind of the extreme racist the villain who um, in one scene like basically assaults um, the only black female character and like Mm. You know, like he's known to have shot a black guy mm. or black yeah. people, yeah, armed yeah, yeah, yeah. person. Yeah. Um, yeah. We were talking about that scene because so he gets
1: his comeuppance, doesn't he? He gets yeah. put out and it's this joyful, jubilant scene.
0: Yeah, because it's like the black characters like pin one on him, and yeah. they get a recording of him saying what he's done, and then, and then he gets, gets arrested taken, yeah. and taken away
1: and presumably locked up forever. And
0: yeah, so like, what was your yeah. take on that scene? Well, I guess
1: yeah, I guess something that that in some ways was the most unrealistic scene, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yeah, it didn't ring true at <laughs> all I guess um, I think it was I guess what I was interested well I, I'd say I'd, I'd want to say two things about it firstly at a level of text I think you know it was though actually this wasn't as apparent as I thought it was going to be. It was by then, but it was a homage to, like, the black exploitation film, right? That mm-hmm. genre of films from, like, s- yeah. in the 60s and 70s, I think, yeah. that kind of had black protagonists. So made by black filmmakers, they had black protagonists. Mm-hmm. Why are they we- called black exploitation black exploitation. Yeah, so why are they called that? I don't know. Well, because like, I guess it's... <sighs> That's a really good question. <laughs> I guess they're kind of glamorising. Yeah, like so purposely like, they're kind of,
2: and Yeah. yeah it. It. They, like, they, do, they, do, they do like
1: kung yeah. fu things. Yeah. Do, like, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like oh. this kind of hyper real yeah. version of blackness, right? I think it's right? yeah. yeah.
0: something different. Yeah, I think you are. Uh-huh.
1: Right. But, you know, Shaft is a really famous uh, one. are they're, like they're kind bright. of more like
0: soul
2: Aspect. Yeah. Um, so they're
1: kind of glamorising, kind of, which, you know, if you think about black culture at that point, was totally denigrated. And they're actually kind of taking pride in the fact of being hustlers or private dick. Or, you know, yeah. um, and I guess, um, and one of those, what was really important about those films was that like, they were like one of the first genre of films that had the black, black leads, mm-hmm. um, men and women, incidentally, mostly men, but like Pam Greer is obviously a very famous mm-hmm. kind of black exploitation actress, um, but also they had a kind of cathartic element. Right, they had a cathartic element. So for a black audience who's constantly you know, being disavowed, you know, they're going to the cinema, they're not seeing themselves present or they're the bad guys. Mm. You know, that was like to see the black lead, whether they're a criminal or a cop, kind of win was like this incredibly produced this really Affective, if you like, with an A kind of response. It was this really joyful, jubilant, which kind of energized and empowered. These films are ridiculous. I mean, there's nothing nuanced about them in terms of character development, all those kind of aesthetic value values That's that what we I think would I use. I felt with Black
2: Plansmen. Like, I, found, I really well, enjoyed not seeing black people as slaves. Yeah.
0: Like, I really enjoyed. Or, and I yeah, feel like that's yeah. what Atlanta so, does as well. Like, yeah. there's an amazing episode where they go to a Juneteenth party, yeah. which is just like ridiculous. Like, there's so many like yeah. really absurd moments, well, and it is really over the top.
1: Yeah, but and that's so still making under, a point. Yeah, so I think sometimes I think that kind of the critique of uh, Black Klansman, even though I didn't love it, I, I actually I, I do like Spike Lee, and I but I like you know I like some of his other films more. Um, but it does um, it does. If you situate it within that black exploitation genre, it is a kind of cathartic.
2: Yeah, it
1: has that effect, and I don't think, and I think for you know, and it was you know, let's face it, it's for an African American yeah, American audience, 100%. right? And so in that in that context, I can definitely see its value. I guess what I would say though is that kind of going back to my book is that I'd want to take, I want to zoom out. And so what what this shows and what this brilliant discussion mm-hmm. with the three of you shows is that even three incredibly smart politically critically engaged people can still have diverging views on the yeah. text, right? And it's a shame that sometimes it makes us question our own blackness. yeah. But yeah. all right. But actually, this is what and this is what Stuart Hall talked about in the politics of representation. There's no actually, there's no one true meaning. There's no true meaning. So let's yeah. stop that. But let's try and build really complex <laughs> arguments and back up our arguments and try and, you know, and Great meaning in that context. Yeah. That being, but I think what's really interesting is in the context of what's happening in terms of Hollywood and media and blackness, you know, I think yeah. it's no coincidence that this came out of the Black Panther I movie. Mean, it's no cause, well, Get Out, I guess, is the direct lineage because Jordan, Jordan Peele produced yeah, it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he had a hand in it and, it. and it kind of just shows that at this moment, blackness has a certain currency, right? Yes. It has a certain yes. value.
0: Yeah, and in um, the adverts before Black Klansmen, there was an advert for that film with Amanda Sigelman... She was in Hunger Games.
1: Right. Okay. She's.
0: What's the film about? It's called The Hate You Give. Oh yeah,
2: it's about the, the young teenage boy that yeah. gets shot unarmed. I mean, it looked yeah. unbearable. Yeah, it's as a film. based on a book.
0: Is um, it? Yeah, it yeah, just yeah. looked like the advert literally made me want to die. But yeah. I thought it was really interesting that they've turned yeah. what is like a very radical protest movement into what looks like quite a saccharine film.
1: Right. I mean, so this is what we're going to have to contend with, I think,
0: yeah. in this post
1: Black Panther. Um, moment we're going to see this kind of you know this g- kind of investment in these big budget films you know and, and so yeah again how do we read that is that kind of a cynical Hollywood who are just taking advantage of like blackness is blackness is the new black <laughs> or, yeah. or is it you know or, or is this actually a really interesting critical moment where some really interesting narratives did and, you watch M7 and seven
2: seconds anyone watch seven seconds know, on Netflix 7... she, the woman who was in it won the Emmy actually the other night it's about a Boy that gets killed by the police. It's like Netflix right. original. Um, but it's done in a way that seems slightly different to the hate right. you give. Like it's very raw. Yeah. And it's talking about how white police like um cover a, a murder of a black teenage right, boy. Right. Um and it's it's really, really good. If anyone oh, okay. any please watch it. Um but it, it it kind of deals with what you're talking mm. about. I think that, I know that's what you're saying. Like if we're going to invest more in these sort of painful sort yeah. of painful realities, like how do we balance that with films that aren't necessarily about that?
3: Mm. Do you know what? I think out of all the things I've seen, the, the most the most kind of powerful thing I've seen is by a rapper called Johnny Lucas mm. and he's done a song called I'm Not A Racist. And it's simple, it's a white guy and a black guy. And the white guy's talking from his point of view how hey, he sees black people. And the black guy talks about uh, black guys talking to hate these white people in America in the Afri- mm. in the American context. It's the most powerful thing you ever see. More powerful than Spike Lee's movie because he's saying we both we told the same story from two sides of the, mm. two sides of the of the of the of the coin. We we don't see each other's point of view, mm. and this confusion has led to X, Y, and Z. Mm. So they use the word. So the white guy's talking about using the word nigger. Yeah. How can you can say it and I can't say it? And he's mm. just genuinely confused about this, mm-hmm. and the black guy says, "Well, when you say it." There's a history to it, and there's a double meaning to it, and it's the most powerful piece. It's more powerful than Black Klansmen, more powerful than anything I've ever seen. I think I need to check that. I'll show you after the things. Yeah, wow. yeah. It's great. It's
1: but great. yeah. So, I, so I guess it's like I, I, I think these I think this stuff's really important. I understand. I think it's a part. It should be a part of anti-racist struggle. I think it's a matter of social justice, but also I think by focusing on like you know production how stuff gets made I think that sheds a different light so, on like how race gets commodified and how at times that can be enabling as well as constraining so what do you think of YouTube then so obviously you've got yeah. all these people producing their own content yeah. their own stuff
3: how does that fit into your kind
1: well, of I'll tell thing? you what you should read an article by um, Ed Hill called Francesca Soband who wrote a piece on, like, black women and their use of YouTube. Mm-hmm. And sh- and it's it's a brilliant study. And it, it's quite explicit. Like, these, these kind of young black women are saying, we don't watch TV, like terrestrial TV. It has nothing, literally bit, yeah. has nothing for us. Yeah. Um, and so they're turning to YouTube. And, mm. you know, it's, it's a good question. Is that, like, also, would you call it, is it uncommodified form of cultural production? I'm not sure, obviously.
0: Well, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Like, like, no one's
0: paying us. Yeah,
1: but no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so that, definitely, those spaces, black cultural production has been enabled by these spaces which allow us to self-define and self-represent with pure autonomy, you know, so But I think that's the same for
0: all but, like oppressed groups. So it's like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the most interesting, like, queer stuff and feminine yeah, stuff yeah. is not the stuff that's being sold on T-shirts that say equality. It's, like, people just yeah. getting a microphone yeah, or, yeah, like, yeah, their yeah. phones
1: and making I mean, their own I mean, you know, the reason why people want to work in the cultural industry is, yeah, it's to reach bigger audiences, but it's to get paid as well, though, right? It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's, like a, it's like a career. And so the only thing I'd say about, you know, those new digital platforms is that you don't get your rewards for labour, but you just say you don't get paid for doing this. Um, not even a little bit. No, no. <laughs> um, just expenses. It's the joy we bring to people's <laughs> like, ears yeah. So, yeah, so I mean, it's, it, I mean, God, this is such an important thing. And this, God, I mean, you know, as you know, this has been an ambition of mine for the past year to be on this podcast. oh, um, oh But, stop! but uh, that, the same, by the same token, there's only so long you'll be able to keep it up, right? Because yeah. in the end, ultimately, you're gonna have to.
0: Because actually, we'll end up hating so each other and <laughs> yeah, yeah, be yeah, in you know, the same room.
1: Definitely, I can definitely feel tension. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's uh, so oh, so you know so how are those kind of so people ask me then so they say "On you're so obsessed with production you're interested in production and how that shapes representations of race and how we can kind of we can go back if we can we can see this problematic representation if we go backwards we can see how that was formed in this production context mm-hmm. so what is the ideal production format for people of colour for any minority um, and actually there isn't one there isn't one it's just about I call it a politics production and I think like Stuart Hall it's contingent it depends on context Mm -hmm. so on the one hand it's like you're a grime artist and you're trying to protect your art you've got all these labels throwing cash at you and you're like thinking well god you know I can buy I can buy my mum a car with you know with this money I'm being offered from you know Universal Records but they want to buy the rights as well they want to own the publishing rights of my music Mm -hmm. and actually so I'm going to stay independent even though it means I'm making that compromise it could also be being, you know, trying to pitch your superhero movie to Marvel and demanding that you get the same budget as the last Avengers movie because it's not fair that I only get a fraction just because this is about, you know, yeah. a Muslim superhero. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So in that context, so even in... So whether it's in a totally independent context or a corporate context, it's about those kind of strategies and tactics and negotiation.
2: They're uh, so going to take your idea what I do right. as think
1: superhero? yeah yeah no this one i've got i've got a better yeah. i've got a better idea for a film actually <laughs> I shared this with Lenny Henry and he really liked it actually um, oh yeah
0: on a mix supervisor lenny henry i didn't supervise lenny
1: henry yes, you did. i helped did him, you did? him <laughs> no, because i wasn't his supervisor i helped him finish it unofficial um, supervisor yeah, he was um best mate no he's a, he's, a, he's a very smart man but um so it's about an asian So so i guess the my elevator pit this is an asian darts player fish out of water triumph over adversity film so it's like a sports film it's like very British it's like got this Asian student who's in a university in this university town they go into like the local pub maybe let's say Lancaster yeah go to a local full of locals he's never played darts, but there's a dartboard Picks up the darts, I like, <laughs> like so. He's is. walked into his pub, like full of like white old working class, you know, yeah. like really feels out of place here. His mates are like, no, it'll be lovely, and so he, so he plays, he's like, so in. he becomes, yeah, becomes absolutely, He's actually a genius, and so everyone in the pub is like, what? And he's just beat the local. He's just naturally, and um, and then I can see that. yeah, and so the whole thing is about how he kind of he's encouraged to take this up professionally. He really loves it, and he's moving up, but he needs that kind of extra training so he there's a Bobby George type character. Remember yeah, Bobby George? Yeah, you know, yeah, the, guy, yeah, the guy with guy with Obi Jewelry. Yeah, yeah, he's like an alcoholic. He kind of gave up darts. He's like the Mr. Miyagi type character, and so this Asian kid kind of gets his. This it's old really reminds working class me of man. what's the
0: film called with the drama? The,
2: the, Don't
1: tell me this. This is like this is brand new original. This <laughs> makes me think of
0: Kinky Boots.
2: That's why I've
0: got <laughs> in my head. Oh, what's the film and it won the Oscar and it's got what's his name? Whiplash. 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 What? <laughs> that is such a dark yeah. film. That's no. not like a guy against the <laughs> the film that's yeah, yeah. like some intense psychological well,
1: so, like exactly right so it's this is going to be a little bit lighter than that but the whole point is i just have this scene in my head of like this asian kid playing darts at lakeside you know like like mostly for the pissed white people in yeah, fancy yeah, yeah. dress and basically his mum and his aunties in like sallow <laughs> oh, oh, kameez oh, at the front uh <laughs> and you know and, and like you know cheering him on and like you know giving as good as they get in terms of and yeah, and eventually he would. And I just have that image of like, <laughs> like ages in this. I would yeah. definitely um, go yeah, watch. Yeah, I think that. so. And mm-hmm. the point is, is that there's going to be no point where his parents disapprove. That's the key. Yeah, there's going to be no part <laughs> and of the storyline. There's like a moment
0: when someone asks him, "What do your parents think of that?" And he just lays into them like, "Who the fuck do you think you are? Yeah. are you racist!" Or yeah, or even not. I just find
1: I do be like, "Yeah, they're all right. They're cool." <laughs> Uh, so yeah but what would it take what would it take to get that film made you know, we get Riz Ahmed. Obviously, is the darts player.
2: Riz Ahmed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: And uh, Ray Winston could be the Bobby George. Oh, so. no, you, oh. Uh, Obviously, I thought we threw it up. But yeah, that. look like that. that. <laughs> that's
3: good casting. <laughs> that's good, good yeah, yeah. casting. I, so. I just, I exactly. just want to do a shout out to my yeah. listeners.
2: If there's any of our listeners that went to see that fucking film that's got Ray Winston in the have, King of
0: Thieves or something.
2: Oh my God, the Brexit wet dream film. Basically, like I mean, it's got Michael Caine, like, and it's. Oh, out, yeah.
0: But. I mean, that really confused me because the exact same film came out last year with a different cast. The one Did about you know? hat and guns. This is yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, and
2: it's got my kind of honestly. I mean, I'm. I, just, seen it. I like, just saw the advert. Don't there. listen to our podcast. I don't want you to listen to my podcast if, if you've seen that film. <laughs> why have
0: you seen it? It's I
2: haven't. Like... I haven't seen it. But it's advertised everywhere. <laughs> it's advertising budget for that film. Every single person is no, why You Ooh. know what
0: really pisses me off is that one about fucking swimming that's got Rob Brydon in. I'm at oh, yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. why have you made a film about a white man swimming? team? <laughs> no one needs to see that film. There's not one black person in it. Oh, yeah, no, worse, come on, it's worse. like the fucking Full Monty, but they're wearing... It's like the Full yeah. Monty, yeah, it was a great film, but it like, done. But yeah. it's
1: interesting they had to stick like a black person in, because precisely they know how you're going to react. Yeah, yeah. because... so they know they're going to get but that But they did that push. in Full Monty, so even in Full
0: Monty, and the black guy does nothing. Oh, is, is it Denzel from... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he does a backflip this- and hurts his back. Yeah. That's the <laughs> only thing he does. Yeah,
3: what I think is interesting, when you include the way Winston, for a certain age group, you automatically link into scum. Yeah. And when you look at yeah. scum, you are look into racism of the yeah. seventies and eighties. Yeah, you are looking into yeah, yeah. what he says about to black people. Like. Yeah. So any time Brady Bunch in the film, all my white mates they say, "Where's your tool?" That's the <laughs> first thing <laughs> they say. and <laughs> yeah. to a certain age group, that conjures up an idea of seventies and eighties racism that you will never see again. But to them, that's the yeah. link. So when you yeah, say, so on me and Charles
0: have absolutely no idea what you're <laughs> so, talking so about right now. Scum <laughs> film. Racism yeah. is not it. I think. Yeah. yeah. And it's just. just a load of like.
2: Oh, it's just so irritating that that, that your film, the darts film, yeah. Yeah. we're going to watch we need that. Name. And it really the last, name. Yeah, I wanted to give a shout out to the mentoring charity. So this is one of the things that happens, and maybe we'll cover it in a future podcast, but in times of austerity and in times where people really are struggling with money, the voluntary sector really suffers and... Quite a lot of the mentoring charities are struggling for volunteers. So anyone lives in London, um, particularly Good North course, London, yeah. charity called Friendship Works, they are desperate for volunteers. A big, big weight in this. And there's
0: a link to them on our website if you go into our bios under Chantal's name. So yeah, check them out.
2: Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us, Onamik. Thank you, oh, man. Thank I, you. Thank I told you it it this, this is
1: your lifelong ambition. is probably so <laughs> <actually, laughs> <so laughs> I talked to or... you about so much yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's like,
2: yeah. Uh, no, it's good impressive.
1: stuff to talk about. Yeah. I think. Thank you for having me. This is a brilliant podcast. I'm so impressed for how you oh, do this every week you. and yeah, yeah, brilliant guests. And you've yeah. been listening to Surviving Society with
2: Chantel, Saskia, and Tiso, and Onamik. We'll be back every few weeks. So don't forget to rate and subscribe.